Welcome to I'm Not an Island. I'm Alini Lopes, and this is episode 2, Addicted. Just a heads up, there is some swearing in this episode. Now, let's get started. On April of 2016, I set out to interview a longtime friend of mine, John. At the time of the interview, John was in his late 40s, a recovering drug addict, enjoying good physical health, steadily rebuilding his life, and in a better state of mind than he had been in years. And among the many elements that had helped bring John to a healthier place at that point in his life, at the top of the list was his religion cycling. But the story of John's recovery isn't as simple as picking up a sport and giving it his all into a miraculous, straightforward transformation. His story is a lot less romanticized version of that. It's a story of addiction. Well, cycling came along when I was young. But then I put it away for other things. When I picked it back up, it was kind of unintentional. It was out of necessity. I was one of those people that uh, wasn't allowed to drive. They thought it would be, it would be better if I didn't. Um, yeah, it's just um, a series of irresponsible events. Some catastrophic and some trivial. You know, you don't pay your insurance, your license gets suspended. You crash a car in the woods you're likely to get your license suspended. Um, so I'd have had my license suspended a couple times and it just seemed like an easier thing for me to just drive and not drive. Um, even when I got my license back, I continue riding and not driving. So there's no, there was no one event. There were a lot of events over like a six to eight year period. Um, that just said, Hey man, why don't you, not drive anymore so I had to find alternate means of transportation so it it was a necessity that I got on the bike um, and that would have been in 2008 2009-ish I'm intimately familiar with John's life around that time he and I were roommates for a brief stint between 2008 and 2009, when I had moved to Savannah to attend college. Back then, I wasn't fully aware of John's antics, but I could tell he was getting himself into shady situations because he had had his license suspended, his car was no longer in his possession, and he didn't have money to pay his share of the house bills on time. Looking back, I couldn't help but to feel frustrated with him and that feeling was often amplified by my lack of awareness over the depth and the seriousness of his problems. Little by little, I felt I couldn't trust John anymore and our friendship started corroding. But the other, more positive side of John's downfall is the hobby he had to reacquire. I know that I deliberately um, started using um, cycling, you know, when we were in Savannah. You know, I had that, that slick little single-speed bike, and that's how I got around town, and you start to develop an identity around a thing that you do. 
so I, I was kind of a guy that was always on a bike whipping through town. And then there's this other thing, you know, when you're kind of down and out and a little bit broke and you, you have to find a way to occupy your time. Um, I found pretty quickly that cycling was a great way to occupy a big chunk of time in a really kind of quiet way. Um, so it went from, you know, riding around town on a bike to um, buying a road bike, you know, going through all the the preparations and, you know, the accessories things and, and then discovering that I really did like kind of putting my head down and grinding at something for two and a half or three hours. And like I said, it's, it was inexpensive initially because I, you know, I didn't have, you know, I needed a, a hobby and it was a cheap one. And I just decided that that was going to be a lifestyle for me. It was commuting. Um, and then it became, you know, cycling as a broader activity, you know, fitness, endurance, that sort of thing. I, you know, I had a buddy that had uh, similar problems that I did. You know, he liked to party, liked to do cocaine, he liked to, you know, while out. And he got into triathloning, and that was sort of the joke was, yeah, anything to get the heart rate up, right? So I was kind of aware of the nature of the thing that will attract me away from a thing that I don't want to do anymore. You know, I knew that I was replacing sort of one drug with another drug. You know, for me, it was something that, you know, gets the heart rate up. And uh, I'm, I'm totally okay with the idea of thinking of, of the bike as my drug. Um, I'm, I'm not hiding from the fact that I might have something of an addictive personality and I'm using that to supplement that. Initially, I was replacing something else and I was aware of it. But then it just became the thing that I did to the point that when people say something like they admire what I do, I don't see anything admirable about it because, you know, there's no virtue in doing it for me because it's not like I'm, I feel like I'm toiling at something. Um, I can't wait to get on the bike in the morning, you know, or I can't wait to go for a ride. I can't wait, you know, planning out a ride and then just going and going in another direction and coming back three hours later and saying, man, that was, that was awesome. John was rediscovering himself in a new light. The new identity around his bike was a hopeful step toward change. But while that positive new habit was being nurtured, John's world was still simultaneously crumbling around him. There was actually a, a point in my life where I went to sleep thinking about drugs, and then I dreamt about drugs, um, and then I woke up thinking about drugs. And when you're in that kind of cycle, and your sleep is weird, you know, sort of your daytime is everybody else's nighttime, your nighttime's daytime. You know, you just get yourself together barely enough to go into work and, you know, everybody knows that you're not right. And then, you know, you go home and kind of party through the night. And so you're, you know, it's just sort of always nighttime in your life because you're either inside work or you're awake at night partying, but you're not doing the daytime thing. That was, you know, it was having those sorts of weird realizations or you're in a situation where you're going, I can't, I don't know how I got here and I don't understand why I'm doing this. Um, yeah, I mean, there was a, a pretty long period of time that I felt, I don't want to say hopeless for myself, but I did feel like I was getting close to a point where, you know, I had tried to spin it around a couple times and I felt like I was getting to that point where I think this is where the edge is. And if it doesn't change now, it doesn't change. Some people do, some people don't. A lot of people do. And yes, some people don't. And I was looking at all my friends that were able to just kind of, 
you know, just stop that behavior, moderate it, or just walk away from it altogether. And I seemed to be the one that couldn't walk away from it. And it got a little, you know, a little bit scary there for a minute. You know, there was this phase of my drug use that I talk about is when, yeah, that's when drugs were fun, you know, when we're getting dressed up and going out to a club every night and everybody's dancing, everybody looks good, everybody's having fun. And then it becomes something different where, you know, maybe a year and a half, two years later, you're in a room by yourself getting high, you know, a little bit paranoid, noises are a little bit weird, you kind of have the lights out. And that's when drugs aren't fun. And that's when drugs get a little bit scary. So I went through the fun phase. And then, you know, it's like everybody goes through the fun phase and everybody just stops having fun and starts living a mature, real life. And I was having fun. And I didn't want the fun to end. So fun for me became a little bit more serious and not quite as much fun. When friends that once joined in decide to switch gears into a less toxic and more grown-up lifestyle, John was left alone with a habit that he once deemed fun. At that point, however, he was also left with a cluster of regrets he had collected along the way. Um, I think those regrets are the ones that are just really, really obvious. You know, you... You abandon your children for a period of time. You test the limits of people's forgiveness if it's, you know, friends, if it's um, work, if it's family. Um, And you really are oddly aware of the fact that you're um, really, really stressing people out, doing damage to people, you know, emotionally. Um, If it's your children, you know, the wear and tear that it has on a parent's health. When they see somebody, a kid struggling, and when I say struggling, I don't mean you know not understanding their place in life or um, having trouble at work, but struggling just to fucking make it on a daily basis. And they see it, you know, parents, family, friends, um, coworkers see it, and you test those limits, and you you know you're doing it, and you hate the fact that you're doing it, and then you know you kind of despise yourself to uh, the varying degrees in various situations. Um, because you're this night walking creature that can't really interact properly with people and you've created a cycle where nobody trusts you and you know everybody you know talks about your potential and you know those things get a little bit frustrating and you have to figure out where is that like I said where is that edge for you and for me it was you know just a series of you know fuck up you know you hit your head against the wall and you just keep screwing up and whatever that moment is that you decide that you want to start a process you know it's a rebuilding process reclamation process and you have to look at it as a process and maybe even give it a name like creating the new John that was the name of the process John called it a rebuilding process a reclamation process And I would add that perhaps it's also a redemptive measure, or at least an attempt to it. 
the process he named as creating the new John was the repavement of a road he had damaged himself. And that repavement, which in the case of an addict is ongoing, takes both time and a lot of hard work. But if there's a glimmer of success, and in John's case, I might add, he had much more than just a glimmer, the rewards are incalculable. It is as simple as the fact that um, my parents are proud of me. I feel like my friends and my employer, my coworkers, trust me. And that is probably the most significant thing because there are so many other things that you can so much more easily um, put back together. You know, if you're juggling these balls, the financial ball, if you drop it, you know, you might be able to pick that one up. The, you know, if you piss somebody off, that ball you can pick up. But the trust ball, if you drop it, um, I'm not sure that that thing's not made out of glass. And that one, um, the trust ball breaks. And it's hard. that's the hard ball to pick up and put back together. And the fact that I've... I'm pretty sure that people look at me now as being, you know, hardworking. That's fine. But you can work hard and people not trust you. And I, I think people trust me now. And there was a time that I just, I, f- I felt like I was a disappointment and I wasn't somebody that people would really, really like trust with shit. Um, and I feel better about that. So earn and trust back is a, if there is a redemptive quality to that process that's I think the first thing you have to hope for um, and it's probably the last thing that you get back you know so trust kind of glad to have it I think the lesson for me has just been you know and I'm when I, I keep referring to the process and I really did look at what I was doing as a as a process of building a new me I have to create this new John and there's a biblical aspect to it about allowing the old me to perish and trying to just create a new me. So I think the lesson is that uh, this is kind of a humbling process that we go through. And I haven't always been a, you know, a super humble person. And I'm in that, that little time frame, 31, 32. Um, I really, really started to feel good about myself. And I felt like I needed to take that show on the road. You know, I'm, I may still have elements of ego and vanity, and but I have learned to be kind of a humble, considerate, you know, maybe a little bit quieter person than I had been in the past. The sense of vanity or whatever it is that makes you want to shine like a peacock. Now, I still want to shine, but in perhaps a little more mature, exemplary fashion in a more sincere way and you know just you have you have to be a little bit humble and I, I don't hate the lessons that I've have, I've had to learn I'm I'm grateful for them and if if you can't get humble you're going to hate the lessons you know because you you're either going to think they're not for you or it's not your fault and that they are for you and it is your fault and that's okay I think there are points when you look in your in the in the distant past I wouldn't change things 
in small ways as I go back. You know, is there anything I did three years ago? No. Is there anything that I did six years ago? No, I wouldn't change that. And I can isolate, you know, single decisions where I could, I could say if I, if I did that differently, if I didn't dig my feet in about that at that point, because I think if I could change something, I would just go back to that point in the distant past where there was this me that never experienced all these things that I went through. And maybe I might talk to that young man and say, hey, man, you might want to reconsider everything that you're about to do because shit's about to get crazy. If you, if you start down this road, you are not going to believe the situations that this sort of upper middle class son of a military officer, white kid, is about to get himself into some over the course of the next 10, 12 years, some really, really weird situations that he shouldn't be in. Truly a young, a young, young man um, about to embark on a, like an adventure that where the, the destination is self-destruction. I would just stop that guy. And then let, whatever happens, let life play itself out from that point. If you haven't already noticed, John is a very wise, emotionally intelligent man. Many of his friends, including myself, will tell you that his wisdom and emotional awareness are one of his biggest traits and what draws people to him. But that sage sort of quality he owns was also what ultimately made the experience of watching his undoing an infuriating reality for the people who loved him. What was best about John was lost in his own mess, and we did not know how to help him when things were tough. And to be frank, it was hard to even know he needed help at times, because John did an amazing job at appearing just fine when things were in fact caving in. But this guy that you're listening to, this version of John, he has been through it. He has made it to the edge of his own life and faced his impending demise if he continued down that path. As he mentioned earlier, some people don't make it, but some do. And like him, they may get to that point in their journey just in time to turn things around. I wake up feeling good. I'm excited about that. Not, not every element of my life is awesome. My own life is awesome. You know, there are parts of it that, that aren't, but uh, I got a promotion at work. I'm a manager of a restaurant now. That's kind of cool because it's actually a job that I feel like I should have been doing for a long time. But I had to put myself into a spot where I could earn my way back into that position. Um, and it was primarily the, the slowly doing a good job every day and being that uh, I'll be there if you need me kind of guy. And, you know, just getting getting trust back. And um, So I am excited about that. I like managing. Um, I like my management style. And I like sort of my new attitude. I'm, I'm aware of the fact that I'm a teacher. Um, I like the fact that we have some young people at work that are teachable and willing to learn. Uh, we have a good crew at work. Um, I like the idea of being able to teach a little bit. Is you want to you want to feel good about what you do, and you want to you want there to be self satisfaction apart from nuts and bolts aspect of the job. I'm not necessarily interested in influencing them by example, you know, as a cautionary tale about the troubles that you can get into in the restaurant business. But if those things arise, 
you know, if if I do see a youngster in trouble, be, I, I can see what people are doing. I know when people are doing stupid things. I feel like I'm a little more equipped than others to, you know, maybe put a hand on a shoulder and, you know, chastise them or give them a kind word or. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm pretty excited about getting up, going for rides, hopping on the bike, kind of disappearing a little bit. I have some things coming up that I'm going to do with my bike. I'm doing a Wounded Warrior Century Ride, Natchez Trace, which is a, a little part of the country that I hear a lot about, so I'm looking forward to doing that. And then in June, it's the uh, Bragg bike ride across Georgia, um, which will be fun for me because I'm Gonna, it starts in Atlanta, finishes in Savannah, and I haven't been back to Savannah since I moved from Savannah. So it'll, you know, it'll just be fun to you know, get out of town for a minute, um, you know, do some fun riding, and uh, see a familiar neighborhood. Go hang out in Savannah for a couple of days. Yeah, I used to have this little thing that I would joke about at work. But I was, I was kind of serious about it. And this would have been years ago. Um, I might say something like, I'm so glad I'm me. Because I really did, you know. I, I would, another joke would be, I, I woke up this morning and I said, oh my God, another day to be me. How awesome is that? Because I really did have this great sense of being me. And then so yeah, I got to a point where um, I wasn't happy with me. I was, I never completely lost hope in me. You know, I, like I said, I've, I found that edge where I couldn't believe the things that I was doing. And you have that out-of-body experience and you're going, who is that guy? What the is he doing? But I am at that point now where I'm not going to say out loud, um, I'm so glad I'm me. Or what a great day. I woke up this morning and I thought to myself, I get to be me all day. You know, I'm not going to say those things out loud. But I am at a point where it, it's not entirely bad to be me. Um, being me is pretty good. I'm a happy person. I mean, I'm, I wake up kind of, you know, I hit the ground running. Uh, that, that, this is how, how simple some of the happinesses in my life are. When I, I look at the forecast and I see for the next four or five days, it's going to be absolutely beautiful. Um, I will be almost beside myself when I'm going to sleep at night because I get to wake up tomorrow morning and right now there's no traffic so tomorrow I'm going to get up in the morning I'm going to, I'm going to go for a ride there are going to be no cars it's going to be overcast it's going to be, it's going to be 70 degrees absolutely beautiful tomorrow and I will have trouble sleeping tonight because I'm going to be so excited about doing that I, I go to sleep the night before thinking about how awesome it is that I, I get to do that the next day including going to work I'm, I'm one of those lucky people that I uh, get to do a job that I really like doing for people that I like doing it for I am incredibly grateful for, you know, sort of the patience and forbearance of um, my parents, um, my friends, even my children. You know, as much as you you have to deal with being a parent and, you know, children's ability to disappoint you, um, there's also your ability to disappoint your children. And then you, you can also be surprised at how willing people are to forgive. I am very grateful for how willing people have been to forgive me having in addition to the family and friends you know your personal things to be able to feel a sense of self-worth through your job um, and then having that thing to do because if I really if I didn't have something like cycling the idea of just going to work and not having that thing that you identify with um, apart from work 
you know, I'm incredibly grateful for cycling. On the Cinelli Italian bike manufacturer on their website, you know, they have that little thing in Italian that says Crediamo Intelice, in bike we trust. I really do. Um, uh, the bike has become a religion or a religious symbol for me. Um, it is a sacred thing. People used to ask me if I meditate, and I don't meditate as a practice, but I'm very aware of the fact that when I'm on a bike um, and it's just me and my thoughts, which used to be a difficult for, thing for me to be alone with, I can get on my bike and I can knock out a 50, 60 mile ride, spend you know three and a half hours on the bike where it's just me and my breath, and I can feel my knees moving and unison with my breath and I can be alone with my thoughts which is something that I used to not be able to do so yeah if uh, if I didn't have that thing that thing of cycling I don't know how I'd pass my time it's pretty freaking good to be John um, me like me I'm alright do you consider yourself to be a happy person? Um, for sure for sure. I can make it through a whole day without crying. <laughs> I love it. By telling his story candidly and without shame, John has established what I personally consider to be his best new asset, authenticity. Through his own evolution, John has learned the value of personal accountability, of being vulnerable, and owning the pain he may have caused others as well as himself. Dealing with the high level of discomfort that comes from facing his actions was likely the only way healing was possible. And if I may share a few things I have learned through my friendship with John, here they are. That it's possible to deeply hurt and upset the people we love, but it's also possible to amend things by owning our actions, apologizing, and patiently working to earn trust back, however long that may take, and without the promise that that will ever happen at all. That it's possible to make a massive mess of our lives and relationships without meaning to do so. And it's not personal, not even to ourselves. Remember that. And finally, my personal lesson. That it's possible to judge a friend very harshly for their character flaws and shortcomings, not knowing the full extent of their struggle but that it's also possible to transcend the tendency to judge and instead learn to honor the boundaries and spaces where our souls develop and that's never too late to give compassion to one another. John continues to cycle, work, and enjoy life in sunny Northwest Florida. And since this interview, he has also become the grandfather of a beautiful baby girl. That was episode two, folks. I want to give thanks to my friend, Alessandra Boeri, for her support and exchanging podcasting notes. We're both simultaneously learning how to do this, and she'll be releasing her podcast in the next few months. You can find her at Fearless Compass on Instagram. I'm sure she'll announce it there once her first episode is out. Also, thanks to Ian Casey for the music you hear on this episode. You can find a link to his album, Apocalypse, in the show notes at imnotanisland.com. 
And of course, thank you to my friend, John. If you enjoyed the show, please leave me a rating that helps the podcast show up on the search directory so more folks will be aware and listen to it. Thank you so much for listening and see you next time.